want to tell you about a guy, 27-year-old young man named Shane Meeksner. It was January of 2005, and he and his buddies went up to the Canyon Ski Resort near uh, Park City, Utah, and they were, they were up for some, some really cool boarding. And this guy and his buddies were going up to this place called Dutch Draw. Now, look at the sign here, Dutch Draw. I don't know if you can see the skull involved. It, it says here, you are leaving the ski resort. You can die. This is your decision. Okay, so it means it's like this is, this is a big deal. It's like at the top of the lifts, and then you put the board on your back, the skis on your back, and you start trekking up so you can ski down Dutch Draw. Well, they did it, you know, and it was awesome. They're in this powder, and, you know, they're going to do it again. So they take the lift all the way up again. They put the boards on their back all the way to the top again. And as they're making their way down a second time, all of a sudden one of his buddies yells, Avalanche! And before they knew it, Shane couldn't get out of the way. And it took him two days to find him. Two days later, they dug him out of the snow. And as the media reported the story, um, they didn't have it quite right. They, they thought he was a novice who didn't know what he was doing and shouldn't have been out in that kind of terrain. But the deal was he was a certified avalanche guide in the backcountry. He, he knew all about the dangers. He had all the kinds of equipment that you bring into this kind of terrain so that if you get yourself in an avalanche, they can rescue you. But guess what? Shane didn't have it with him. He didn't have the very things with him that would have saved his life. He wasn't a fool who wandered on the wrong part of the mountain. He was lulled into thinking, it's going to be okay. And as we're coming to the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul's saying to his friends, and he's saying to us, hey, guys, don't be a fool. Don't be lulled into thinking that you're strong enough to go out in this world and fight in your own strength. Don't be stupid in thinking that you can go out there and not put the armor of God on. You got to put it on, all of it on. And so he... um, He brings us the armor today, and we're going to look at those first two pieces, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And and he's just tying into what we looked at last week. Remember, there's a clear command in this battleground. It's that we would be made strong in the Lord. And the goal and the mission of this is that we would stand our ground, stand the ground that Christ won for us on the cross, that we'd hold that. And the thing that we've got to do that he's called us to do to be strong and to stand firm is to put on all of his armor, not our own. And so today he reminds us that when the enemy comes with lies that would trip us up, when the enemy comes with these accusations that would weigh us down with all this guilt, that what we need is God's truth, the belt of truth, and what we need is God's righteousness, the breastplate, of righteousness. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, page 830, if you need to use the Bible in the rack in front of you. And by the way, those of you who are visiting, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you that Bible. If you're interested in learning more about God and His Word, take that Bible home with you. But page 830 in that Bible, verses 10 through 14, and, and Paul's just saying, hey guys, it's time to buckle up. Buckle up with that belt of truth 
and that breastplate of righteousness. So read it together with me. Um, Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So let's just talk about these lies because the Bible tells us that the enemy uses lies. In fact, John 8:44 calls him a liar and he's the father of all lies. And when he tells lies, Jesus says he's speaking his his native language. That's that's what he traffics in, lies. So I'm guessing this week some of us have been wrestling with these lies that are meant to trip us up. There's been lies about God. He's not good. I mean, if he were good, why is my life so bad? I mean, I got a crummy life. I got a crummy job. I've got crummy friends. I got a crummy marriage. There is nothing good about my life. And I, I actually think that God's holding bad good from me. That there's good things that I'm enjoying and should enjoy that he's saying I shouldn't. I think he's holding back. Some of us heard lies about God not being a loving God. I mean, man, if he's loving, why do you have so much heartache in your life? Why are you suffering like this? Why the emotional trauma? Why the physical stuff? It's like one wheel after another continues to fall off. There's been so much hard things, and maybe it's the loss of loved ones or whatever. And, and, and the lie is, if, if God is good and loving, why, why is, my, my, is my life in this world so full of heartache and suffering? Some of you heard lies that it's too late. He's given up on your fickle faith. He won't forgive you. Man, he's moved on. He's tired. He's tired of waiting for you to get it, so you just ought to forget it because he's given up on you. Some of us have heard the lies that he'll only accept us if we do more good works, and quite frankly, you're just not being good enough, so come on, buck up, buddy, and get some good works going, and then you'll be in good graces with God. Some of you have been wrestling with the unique claims of Christ and the lies come to you and say, hey, he's not the one and only son of God who's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. He's one of many. Yeah, he was good, but there's a lot of good guys. And there isn't just one way, man. There's a lot of different ways up this mountain to God. Some of us have been wrestling with the lies that have to do with God's word. I mean, this word. Come on, it's written by men. There's all kinds of contradictions. There's errors in here. You really going to believe this? How can we know what's truth anyways? I mean, is there anything that's really absolutely true? How do we know? It's just a lot of opinions here. And the lies are undermining your confidence in God's word that sets up the rationalization for your behavior. But some of you have been Wrestling with things that are a lot more personal. The lies are all about you. You're no good. You can't find a job. You can't get married. No one's going to want you. You don't have a friend. 
No one wants to be with you. You're a lousy parent. You're a lousy husband. You're a lousy provider. You're a lousy wife. You're a lousy lover. You're a lousy child. You're a lousy follower of Christ. And on and on the list goes. No one loves you and no one ever will. And you're starting to believe those lies. Some of you, I mean, you're just like on the complete other side of it. I, I call these the Muhammad Ali lies. That I am the greatest. And you're going, yeah, I think I am. I, I, I think I am. And, you know, I think I deserve all this. And, and I, I think, you know, people ought to pay more attention to me. And my family ought to center on me. Some of you are believing a lie that goes something like this. Hey, give yourself a break, man. You're only human. God knows you're human. What's the deal? Yeah, you're messing up. But look around, pal. Look around, Susie. There's a lot of people out there doing a whole lot worse than you are. It's not all that bad. And besides, he's loving God. He forgives. And in the end, everybody's in. Everybody's forgiven. Live and let live. Go for it. Some of us have been believing lies about happiness and the source of happiness. Some of you really believe the lie that says, God wants you to be happy. So if this makes you happy, that's what God wants for you. Some of you think that you just got, you got to get some new stuff, more stuff, better stuff. And if I get that, man, I'll be happy. A new friend, a new spouse, a new job, a new boss. Uh, make the team, more money, bigger house, nicer cars. Get in that program in the university so I've got that pedigree. That'll make me happy. Yeah, some of us are believing lies about our marriages. Your wife's been telling you we need help and you keep believing the lie. We're okay. We're okay. She's just exaggerating. And you know you're not. Some of you are believing the lie that, you know what, it'll never change. It is what it is. It's been bad for a long time now. There is nothing there. This marriage is flatlined, and it's beyond hope, beyond repair. And so, look, we don't have anything. I might as well act like we don't have anything. We're not divorced yet, but I might as well act like we are because we don't have a marriage. And besides, I think... I'd be happy. I think my spouse would be happier if we got a divorce. I think it would be better. And I think the kids, they'll be just fine. Remember that song, Tell Me Lies? Lies, sweet little lies. And they're all around us, all around us. Because we have an enemy who's a liar and the father of all lies. You know why they're all around us? Because we live in this world full of wicked counsel. Remember Psalm 1? Wicked counsel that, that doesn't traffic in truth. We, we have lies all around us because our hearts are deceitful. And even hearts that love Christ can find ourselves still wrestling with what is the right way to go here. Surrounded by lies, reminding us we need this belt of truth. We need to buckle on this belt of truth. So isn't it interesting that that's the metaphor Paul uses for truth, a belt. So I got this bad boy belt right here, right? I mean, this is a belt. Can't get it through my belt loops, but it's a belt, isn't it? Now, isn't it interesting that he uses a belt for truth? I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? 
I mean, what does this thing do? It surrounds us. Truth, like a belt, Paul says, needs to surround us. Truth, like a belt, is something we've got to put on. We, he says, have got to buckle up. Buckle up into truth. It's something that we do. We don't buckle it up. This thing's just going to fall off. There's something we've got to do. And as we have it on like this weightlifter's belt, there's a sense where it strengthens our core. But at the heart of the teaching here, Paul's thinking of a Roman soldier. And when he put on the belt, you know what he was doing? He was taking care of what we would call the under armor, the stuff underneath this breastplate of righteousness. It had to do with the warrior's tunic. A tunic is like a long robe that went all the way down to the floor. Now, you start to try and do battle with something down there around your feet. I mean, I've worn a ministerial robe, and, and I've tried to go upstairs like this, and it's precarious. You can trip. We've seen brides who haven't hiked up the hem of their garment, right? And they trip. You can get tripped up. And so the whole idea here is that the warrior would take the tunic and bring it up here and put the belt around it so he was prepared and ready for attack and for action. That's what he's saying. Put on the belt of truth. Prepare yourself for action. Because if you're not prepared, you're going to be tripped up. Now, I've got to tell you the story. It's, it's hard to believe, but it really is true. I heard it from him myself. My friend Malcolm Cronk. He's a mentor. I have so much respect for him. He started preaching in his 20s. He's in his 90s, and he's still preaching. Is that cool? Man, I hope I get to be preaching in my 90s. So Malcolm's preaching at Church of the Open Door, big church in L.A. This is like before there were mega churches, 5,000 people in the 70s. We're talking big. And he's preaching God's word. And all of a sudden, the most horrific thing happened to him. It's the stuff that we dream about. We have nightmares about as pastors. He, I'm not kidding you. He loses his pants. <laughs> they dropped right down to the floor. You know, he had a little paunch. And, and the waistline got a little beyond the, the high point of the punch, and whoosh, they were gone, right on the floor. But it wasn't a problem because the choir had already been dismissed. So nobody behind him saw him, and he wasn't preaching behind a little, a little music stand here. He had a big old boat of a pulpit in front of him, so nobody could see. But he had a big problem. He's preaching in his boxers. His pants are at his ankles, and he's got to figure out, in a few minutes here, this sermon's over, and I've got to walk out of here. How am I going to get these pants back up without anybody knowing what happened? But man, he's a good old veteran preacher. And so he's, I don't know where he was, but he quickly went this way in his thoughts. And isn't that the point that the Lord Jesus taught us when he taught us how to pray? And let's pray that together, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he got away with it, he thought, until he got to the back of the church. And a guy came up to him with a big smile and said, Pastor Cronk. I saw the whole thing. The sound booth was right up behind and saw the whole thing. But you can imagine trying to go anywhere fast with your pants around your ankle. It ain't going to happen, is it? It ain't going to happen. He says, listen, you want to be ready? Then you got to get ready with this truth around you so you're ready to face these lies because these lies will knock you off your feet. They'll knock you off your feet. So what truth are we putting on? Whose truth? Remember, it's the armor of God. 
We're to be strong in his strength. So what we're putting on is God's truth. Here's what Jesus said. He's praying in his high priestly prayer at the end of his life in John 17, 17. He says, Father, I'm praying for my friends, my disciples, and I'm asking that you would set them apart, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. And so when we think about this belt of truth, what we're putting on is God's word. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, we believe that it is what it is. That every word of it is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And it's useful. It's this living, active, powerful, two-edged sword that teaches us and corrects us and, and rebukes us and trains us to know how to live a godly life. That's how we put it on. We put it on by faith, believing it's word, God's word. And we read it and, and get into the word so, so much so that the word now is in me. Now, I, I'm sure this hasn't happened to any of you, but this happens to me. I, I'm reading through my, my reading in the morning, and I'll go like a chapter, and all of a sudden I go, I don't think I know what I just read. I've been thinking about my day. I've been thinking about something else, and I realize I just read the word, but... The word's not in me because I don't even know what I just read because my mind's been somewhere else. So we're in the word to the end that the word would be in us so that when those lies come, guess what? Oh, we can see it for what it is. That isn't true. That's a lie. The people that study counterfeits, you know how they get experts at spotting a counterfeit? It's not by studying all the counterfeits. It's by knowing the real thing. And how are we going to put on this bell truth? By knowing truth, reading it, immersing ourselves in it. And we need to get in community with people who love God and want to center their lives around God's word. And friends, that's our big push this coming year. We want to get you amongst friends who want to grow in Christ, growing together in him, around his word, trying to understand what it means and what it says and what it means for my life and helping each other, encouraging each other in our walk with Christ and for Christ. So we got to put it on as we get into the word, as we get into community. And so what happens is we, we start dealing with these lies. So you think about the lie or the lies that you've been listening to this week. You write that down. You take out that section. You know, every week there's a section for notes. Write, write it down. What is the lie? And what is the truth? What is the truth that just wipes that lie right off its feet? So some of you have been dealing with your own self-regard and you, you feel like dirt. And, and you got to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Hey, in his love, he chose me to be adopted as his child. And he did it according to the pleasure of his will. He, he wanted to do that, to adopt me in. And, and I'm his masterpiece, Ephesians 2.10, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for me to do. Hey, I'm a masterpiece. I'm not a piece of junk. And, and God's got work for me to do. We go to the truth. We go to God's word as we buckle up. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he was assaulted by the enemy with the lies and the temptations, he went to God's word. And so the first thing is the belt of truth. He says, buckle it up. Get it on. May it surround you. May it, may it prepare you for action. It's the first piece of armor, and let's note it. There's a sense of priority here. 
to truth, to God's word. Second thing he says is, um, you need to put on the breastplate of, accusa- of, of righteousness because when the enemy comes with his accusations, uh, he's bringing guilt to knock us off our feet. And, and, and here's how it works. It, it's like he remembers what we've done or he knows what we've done. He recalls it back and he gives some com- color commentary on it. He says, man, look what you did. And you're going, yeah, I did that. And he says, now, this, this means this is who you are. And you start to believe that. But it's not who you are. If you've taken the stuff and crud of your life to the cross and said, Jesus, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Wash me clean. Take the guilt away from me. You know, there's two kinds of guilt. One, I think, is a proper guilt, and the other is an improper guilt. The proper guilt is when we feel bad in our conscience for what we've done against God, understanding this isn't what he wants for us. And it's not how we love God, and it's not how we love our neighbor as ourself. And and when he convicts us through the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, verse 8, when he convicts us of that sin... We feel bad about it. That's, that's a proper response. And what we do at that point is, through the gospel, the good news, we go, oh, that's why Jesus died. That's why he came. He came to deal with the stuff in my life, the rebellion in my life that has separated me from God. He came to die for that, that I might know God and have a relationship with God and live with him forever. And so... If you have that kind of guilt and you haven't taken it to Jesus, well then, you got to do that. That's our only hope. You can't work it off. You can't meditate it off. And you know you've been trying to forget it. But it's there, isn't it? And it's got a weight that's crushing you. Take it to Jesus. But the stuff that this enemy does is not that kind of guilt. That's the role of the Holy Spirit as he convicts us. What the the enemy does, Satan does, is he now says, look, that thing that you did, that's really bad. And you're really bad. And that's who you are. In fact, you've done it a few times since then, haven't you? And I bet you you're going to do it a few times more. And I think God's getting tired of that, and he's getting tired of you. And you know what? You're just dirt, my fair. You you don't have any use in God's service. And, And he weighs us down with this guilt. So all of a sudden, we've lost our identity in Christ, and and there is nothing left in us that even resembles any kind of energy towards his purposes, his mission. We're out of the race. We're out of the fight. And he's an expert at that. He is the accuser, Revelation 12, 9, of God's people. So he comes with these accusations and the, the, the armor here that we go to is this breastplate. Now, what is a breastplate? Well, it was a piece of armor that the soldier had. It covered the front and the back. Now, I don't have a breastplate here, but I've got this. This is a um, bulletproof vest, okay? So this is a bulletproof vest. You put this thing on as a law enforcement guy. You can't put this thing on without knocking everything off. All right, here we go. Sorry. You put this thing on, and you go out on the streets, and it's going to save your life like it did Bob Vernon. Bob Vernon was the chief of police at L.A. 
in his younger days on the force, he's out on the streets and he sees this guy speeding down the highway in L.A., pulls him over. He doesn't know the guy just robbed the store. He just thinks it's a traffic violation. He goes up. He's ready to get this guy's ID. The next thing you know, it, the guy pulls out a gun and hits him right here. Knocks him back about seven feet. He's flat out on the ground. The guy in the car was sure he just killed the cop. He's getting ready to flee the scene of the accident when Vernon stands up, draws his gun, and says, you're under arrest. Drop your gun. The guy throws out the bag of money, throws out the gun. Please don't shoot me. He had his bulletproof vest on. It saved his life. Saved his life. And you see these attacks and these accusations, they're aimed right at the heart. In fact, the the word for this breastplate in the Greek was a heart guard. A heart guard, cardio, phulox, heart guard. And we got to put on this breastplate of righteousness. Now, I don't know, but I bet you a whole bunch of us are going, righteousness, I'm like, I haven't used that word this week. What in the world does that word mean? Righteousness, the first part of that word is the word right. It's always doing the right thing. That's what righteousness is. And that protects us always doing the right thing. It's an attribute of God and it's something that he desires and demands from us to have a relationship that we would always do what is right. Well, wait a minute, I can't do that. That's right, we can't do that. So the bottom line is when we ask the question, whose righteousness, we know by the virtue of the, uh, uh, the enemy's attack on us that it's not our righteousness because the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter What is it, 66 here? 66, 64, verse 6. It says this, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we proudly display our righteous deeds to God, we find out that they're not all that good. They're but filthy rags like autumn leaves. We wither and fall on our sins like the wind. Sweep us away. And so when we think about what are we putting on, it's not our goodness. It's not our good works. That is no protection. It would like be giving a cop some fishnet and say, hey, put this on and wrap it around you a few times so that when you go out there and someone draws a gun, you'll be okay. Yeah, right. No, it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's. That's what the breastplate is. It's Christ's righteousness. So look at Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, Paul writes. That's in Jesus not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, we can't be found righteous through keeping the law because what we know through the law is we keep breaking the law. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. It's in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So whose righteousness are we putting on? Christ's righteousness. How do I put it on? By faith. I believe that when Jesus died, he died for my sins. I believe that he didn't just deal with the deficit in my spiritual bank account where I owned God gazillions of dollars and there was no way for me to pay back the debt. And I believe that he transferred that debt onto Jesus' account and he washed it clean and he paid it in full. But I believe something even more that he did another transfer, not just my debt to Christ, but Christ's righteousness to me. 
And I'm covered in Christ, living a life where he always did the right thing. That's my hope. And that's my only defense to the accusations. And so he comes and he brings that guilt. He comes with that accusation that weighs us down and seeks to take us out of the fight. And what we got to do is just keep putting it on. Christ died for that. Yeah, I know it's true what you're telling me, but Christ died for that and I'm covered in his righteousness. So get this junk out of here. Get it out of here, Satan. This is exactly what we find in Zechariah chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 3. Zechariah is like next to last book in the Old Testament. You'll find Zechariah 3 on page 669. Now, Zechariah is a prophet, and he's got these visions. I think there's like nine visions in the book. And in chapter 3, he's got a vision that has everything to do with what we're talking about here in this breastplate of righteousness. So we read in verse 1. In this vision, then, he says, Then he, God, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right side did what? What does it say there? To accuse him. See, that's who he is, and that's what he does. He's standing his right side to accuse the high priest Joshua, this follower of God, this servant of God. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Get out of here, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Hey, hey, this is a guy I've chosen. Jerusalem's my city. Those are my people. I've chosen this guy. So get out of here. He's one of mine. And he says, not only have I chosen him, I've delivered him. What does it say here at the end of verse 3? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? This image of God rescuing Joshua from the fires of judgment. Hey, he's mine. I chose him. I delivered him. Don't you dare take him back to what I freed him from. Don't you dare remind him that he is something that he is not. He's mine. And so he rebukes him. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Oh, now we know why he's being accused by the enemy. Because he's got filthy clothes on. This is a problem for the high priest. The high priest was to have spotless, pure garments as he offered a perfect sacrifice to a holy God on behalf of the sinful people. And it was not fitting for a priest to come into the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement to offer that sacrifice in clothing that wasn't appropriate for his guests. The Almighty Holy God. So then in verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your what? Yeah, not your clothes, your sin. The clothes were a symbol of his sin. And so there's the enemy pointing it out. Look at your sin. Look at your sin, Joshua. You have no use to God. Look at your sin. You call yourself a high priest of God? Look at what's on your garments, man. You're a mess. Who are you kidding? God says, hey, let me tell you what I've just done. I've washed you clean. I've forgiven you. See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Isaiah says, it's the robes of righteousness. God putting that on us. It's the breastplate. Then I said, it's like a virtual reality vision here. Now Zachariah is getting really into it. So he says, then I said, I, Zachariah, said, hey, put on a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Well, why did he say that? Because Zechariah knew something about the turban. The turban had a medallion on it. Leviticus, Leviticus tells us in the Old Testament that inscribed on that medallion was the words, holy to the Lord. It meant set apart for his service. Because what Zechariah fundamentally wanted to know for Joshua and for himself is what happens when we sin is God done with us? Is it over? Does, does he have any use for us? And he gets the answer when they put the turban and he says it. He sees it again. He reads it, holy to the Lord. Oh, that's so great. And some of you, you, you thought what you've done has completely eliminated you from God. That man is too big for God. And, and you've just disqualified yourself from ever being of use to God. Through Christ, we can be useful. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 8. Now, you don't have it on the screen, but look in your Bibles. So he ends this vision with these words. Listen, O high priest, this is God speaking now. Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. He's saying, this vision, Zachariah, that you're seeing, it's about the future. So he goes on to talk about the future. He says, in the future, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. That's a word, a title for Jesus, a prophetic title. See the stone that I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes. It's a perfect stone. And on that one stone, I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And here's the inscription. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So what you see today is pointing forward to another day. It's going to be an unbelievable day when my servant, the branch, is going to come. And in one day, he's going to wipe out all the sins of the world. Well, guess what? That day happened 2,000-some years ago on the cross of Calvary, outside of Jerusalem. And what he was telling Zechariah and Joshua, you've got to look forward and put your faith in that day when my servant's going to die for the sins of the whole world. And what he's saying to us is we look back to that day. We look back to that day, the day when Jesus Christ died for everything that you and I have ever done. And that is our protection, his righteousness. We celebrate that. We have the privilege of putting that on, and we have to put it on. We need this bulletproof vest where the accusations will hit us in the heart and they'll knock us flat out. So friends, this week we go out. We don't live in Beverly Hills. We live in a place called Baghdad. We, We live in a war zone. Don't be lulled into thinking you can walk out of here And just buckle up once in a while. That once in a while, it'd be good to remember, that's right, Christ died for me. That's cool. No, that we, every day, we put it on. And so, you know, what what a great thing that that God uses metaphors. So, you know what? We still wear belts. Isn't that a great thing? So, every time you put your belt on this week, remember, hey, do do I have God's truth surrounding me? Every time you, you, you put on your shirt or your blouse, you think, hey, do I have got my breastplate on, the righteousness of Christ covering me? That we might be able to stand in the day of battle until he comes. Let's pray. And so our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we would pray that we'd be a people who have complete confidence in what you've given us through your son. You've given us his truth, your word, which is all about him. You've 
given us his righteousness. And may we find our protection in the fight from him and through him that we might live lives for him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.